So if you had, if you were king of USPSA for a day, how would you change that? I would quantify it in some way, like a number of feet between positions, like an actual measurement between positions. Because at one point it was never spelled out in the rule book, but you heard range master saying, oh, two steps or one and a half steps. It's like, well, whose step are you talking about? Are you talking about my steps? Or are you talking about a guy that's six, six? It, that doesn't like make a sense. Mason lane or a nil. Right. Step. And then they, yeah. and then they added or view into the wording to position or view. And that was kind of just a workaround of that to stop having people stop questioning that it needs to be quantified. So if I had, when I'm designing stages and building stages and proofing stages, um, I don't go all the way to the IPSC extreme. IPSC doesn't allow more than eight rounds to be taken from any position. Um, I, I make sure you can't see, you can't take more than 10 rounds from any position. And that's just a rule that I follow. And it, it's something that's easy to, to work around, um, and make adjustments to make that the case that you can't take more than 10 rounds from any position. And it's even easier if you're designing stages with that philosophy in mind. Um, so I guess if I was king for a day, I would probably say no more than 10 rounds can be available from any position. And just leave it at that. Leave it at that. Okay. That, that would make matches a lot. That would make matches interesting again for low cap shooters. Cause a lot of stage design, I don't, I don't want to say that that's what's pushing people out of low cap because that would be ignorant for me to say high cap and dots are pushing people out of low cap irons. That's just, right. it's what people seem to want to shoot, but you can't use one as an excuse for the other, I guess. Like there's a lot of people saying that the reason they want to go to 15 round production is because it meshes better with modern stage design. And I think that's kind of a cop-out. I think that's just the stage design needs to be better to keep the stages interesting for the 10 and eight round guns. Just increasing capacity doesn't fix that. Yeah, I, I feel that people coming into the sport, though, just don't want to be restricted to no, they 10 don't. rounds. You know? No, they don't. They and want the high capacity in the dot, and that's what they're going for. Right. Yeah, so I'm, that's what I'm saying. I don't, I don't want to be ignorant and try to blame things like that on people not shooting low cap anymore, but there are people that still want to shoot low cap. And mm -hmm. if the stages were still interesting for low cap, I think it would keep some people from leaving low cap, but that's speculation. I can't really say that definitively. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I, and look, I was at the Carolina classic and people mentioned, you know, that they like shooting your match when I was down there, the people mentioned your low cap match and how they enjoyed shooting it. So I definitely think there is a desire, at least within that low cap community, if you want to call mm -hmm. it that to shoot matches that are low cap eccentric, you know, right. Right. Um, because they are more friendly and stage design and strategy goes into it more, but that leads me into also, you mentioned that, Stages shouldn't be designed for any division in particular, but what about nationals? Like I, I like Ironsight nationals. I think it should be 
manufactured in such a way that it is all based. If it's truly iron sights, limited is the only one that's not a low cap, but it, it should be designed in such a way that there's no advantage for limited over the low cap guys, except for the fact that they don't well, have always, to reload. There always often. will be. Yeah, there always will right. be. And that's why they're but, different divisions. Right. But, but nothing so extreme that it, it puts the, low cap guys at even greater disadvantage is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, what puts, well, I don't even know if you can say puts low cap at a disadvantage because they're not competing against the limited guys um, True. in the overall. But when you get to a point like there, when the stage breakdowns get super convoluted with an eight round gun, just to not go to slide lock um, two or three times or have to break up target arrays into multiple magazines just to mm. avoid extra reloads. That that gets to be a lot. And I think there was a couple stages in particular at Nationals where I think the positioner view rule wording was abused a little bit. There were a lot of plans that people shot and I shot where you're kind of doing an extra movement um, on a reload that really wouldn't need to be done if you were shooting a high cap gun, just because you're doing the reloads, you might as well take a step at the same time to make the shooting just a little bit easier. But it was like drag step reloads. Like you would move your lead foot and just drag your back foot a little bit while you were reloading just to set yourself up a little better for the next array of targets, but it wasn't really necessary where okay. you could have just blended it all together with a high cap gun. That's the kind of stuff that isn't that interesting to me in a low cap right. division. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And that, that kind of leads into what I was trying to say where, you know, you shouldn't be the high cap guy, the limited guy shouldn't have the advantage where he can just shoot all the targets while you you're doing basically what you're saying, a standing reload because you're yep. low cap and there are so many targets available. That's what I mean. You know, it should be, you shoot so many targets, move so many targets, move. And that yep. gives you that opportunity while you're moving to reload where it's not as big a disadvantage as what, what, right. what I mean. So no. And, and, and to your point, um, there are stages that when they're, they flow the correct way and, well, I, don't, I shouldn't say the correct way. They flow in such a way that you can break up the stages into um, into eight round mags um, with actual movement space in between the arrays to do the reloads. You can keep right up with the limited guys shooting single stack. You absolutely can. Right. I, I just shot the Illinois section, or not the Illinois, the Indiana section match a couple weeks ago. And I was shooting single stack. It was the weekend after nationals. Um, and the morning of the match, I saw there were only three people registered for single stack. So I was like, that's not going to get recognized. I'm just going to move myself to limited, but shoot my single stack gun. And I ended up 96% of the winner of limited shooting a single stack gun. And that was primarily because the stages flowed that way where it was not that big of an issue doing all the reloads because they were all done on the move where a limited guy would have to be moving okay. anyway. So it's not penalizing you. You're able to yeah. move and reload. So right. you're ready to go when you get there. Right. Yeah. Now 
I, I have heard where you think that um, PCC should be standalone. Do you still believe that? I do. Yeah, I think PCC, that, that's a whole different set of challenges that need to be tested that don't really blend with pistol challenges, in my opinion. And maybe PCC shooters have become accustomed to shooting in a pistol challenge environment. So they some of them might be opposed to it, but I, I think it should be its own thing. I think it should have been its own thing from the start. And it probably would have survived a lot better if it was its own thing from the start. Because I'm sure we'll talk about this in the next podcast, but PCC spiked and died really fast within that same three years that we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, that participation. Yeah, I mean way it's down. it's barely over ten percent. So, yeah. and um, I don't know what caused that exactly. If it was all the memes on the internet and people got embarrassed or what it was, but right. <laughs> it really ran its course. Uh, it, it did. And look, there are some dedicated PCC guys. Oh, and I have I've nothing against on here. Me either. Um, and they like shooting pistol courses with a rifle, which I'm, I'm okay with. And all I've ever said is they, they need to be challenged from the fact that it, it still is a rifle. Mm -hmm. It might be a pistol caliber, but it's still a rifle. Right. And I would like to see, because you shot the same match that I used. I know you you referenced it, or at least I think you did. Oh, no, I was thinking 2021. Did you shoot nationals in Frostproof in 2020 by chance? Um, Was it the last year of Frostproof? It nationals? was the last year yeah. of Frostproof. Okay. Yeah. Stage 19 at the very end, that 42-yard target out there. Uh -huh. I shot that stage three times. <laughs> Wait, you're only supposed to do times. it once, Lay. Two and a half times. <laughs> two and a half times. I had two reshoots on that stage because steel kept falling in the wind midway through the stage. Oh, okay. If, if well, we you, you drew to the far, far left paper yes. target, and then there was like another paper and then steel across, and then yep. yeah. Yep. That was the one where the 180 was very ambiguous. Oh, like you didn't yeah. really know what it was. Um yeah. yeah, I shot that stage a couple times. But okay. that was Go ahead with your, your thought on that. Well, and what I was saying is, you know, I didn't realize PCC was in that match. No, it wasn't. Okay. But that's where I'm going with it okay. is that was um, production and carry optics. I think they called it factory gun nationals. Yeah. Yeah, they may have. But it was it was carry optics. And I think you're right. I think it was factory gun, but it was carry optics and, and production. Hmm. And so you had production guys drawing to a 42-yard target. And for the guys on my squad who were shooting production, it was bagged because it was raining. Oh, that would be terrible. Oh, it's horrible. Even with carry optics, I was like, I'm looking at a blob I think in the dark. I think they were Ipsic targets too, weren't they? No, it was uh it was, was a, it a USPSA. Right? Yeah. But um but what I've always said is I wouldn't mind a target or two or like two stages out of 20 at a nationals for PCC where it's a 60 or a 70 yard target. Right. It's easily doable. It's not yeah. that hard. I'm not saying the whole match, but a couple of those thrown in. Right. You know, some good swing, some, just some stuff that challenges those guys. And look, you're still going to have your, your hoser stage. You'll have your rifle manipulation running around in a, in a pistol stage, but, a couple other things that maybe you would never do with a pistol, like yeah. draw to a 60 yard target, right. but you could easily do that with PCC. Right. 
And I think they'd had a standalone PCC Nationals at Frostproof that year, didn't they? They, I don't know if it was that year. I think it was 2021. Okay. okay. I don't, well, you know what? I don't there was know. There was one in there. It was, in that couple years. there was. I don't remember which year it was, though. Okay. But it might have been 2020 or 2021, one of those. So, and that leads right into one of the questions I had for you, which is, do you think we should have multiple nationals or I I'm beginning to think I would like to see a one week long nationals encompassing all divisions. I think that's the direction we need to be going. I, okay. I think it's gotten spread out too far. Um, and especially with the financial situation that the org's in right now, they need to be looking right. at consolidating that. I mean, you're just looking at, I'm not saying if it's right or wrong, but if you're looking at the number the amount of money that the org is losing. And then you look at individual profit and loss statements for each nationals and you see big negatives on four or five different national matches. To me, that's low hanging fruit. Like you need to be cutting that stuff back. Um, and you can accomplish um, pretty much the same thing with like a single one week long back-to-back -back nationals or something like that, where you're talking about doing a four day format and doing one rest day in there. So you're getting a whole mm -hmm. another relay of shooters mixed in. Um, I think that could absolutely happen to where it's one mobilization instead of four for the staff and the org employees. Um, of course, you're eating more lodging and stuff for the extended duration, but it's not going to be significant compared to bringing staff out to four separate events different parts of the country. Yeah. And I think they're undercharging for nationals too. Uh, probably, probably. Um, this is something that I've been looking into and I don't have definitive answers on it yet. Um, but just when you're looking at the finances of nationals, the, the purpose of participation fees, classifier fees at local matches was supposed to be to fund or help fund nationals. That, that was the intention of it, but I don't see it being applied to national budgets. And maybe it is, but I'm just not seeing it. Um, I don't know. I think that's something that needs to be looked into to see if the participation fees per division um, can be tracked a little bit better to offset national budgets. And I also believe that national budgets need to be uh, presented to the board and adhered to. I think nationals just kind of run away on money sometimes. And I think it can be managed a little bit better from a financial standpoint, just from a project management standpoint. Yeah, I would agree and, with that. And that would be easier to do with a, a single bigger event than all these. Spread Absolutely. It, yeah. It'd, it'd definitely be easier to plan for the year, a budget ahead of time, knowing how many slots you're going to have available, how many you're giving away. So you know exactly how many, and look, that thing's going to fill up. There's no yeah. doubt in my mind. It will fill up with a swiftness. Yeah. So you know how many paying slots you're going to have. So you'll know all of your expenses across the board. It's all contained in one. Right. So, and, and it makes, it makes more sense too, but that you have your membership meeting. Well, you have it at the one nationals where right. everybody's going to be at. Right. So, and then yeah, you have I, somebody else said this recently, and it might have even been in uh, the motion 
that Scott Arnberg made at a recent board meeting for financial uh, financial planning or whatever that instead of having a standalone uh, in-person board meeting that didn't coincide with the nationals every year that they just stick around for two more days after the end of the match and have the board meeting then um, that could all be done at the same match you're cutting all that travel expense out yeah yeah absolutely there's just a lot of money to be saved without without a whole lot of uh, no additional work I, I think it would be less work overall as long as you had a venue that could accommodate it and there are some and I've even made the statement that I think there's a way it could be worked out where you do it right up to the lead right up to the first day of shot show where you already have the entire industry there. Mm -hmm. So why not do it right before or right after, however you want to do it, I would say right before you might get a lot more sponsorship and other, maybe some more media coverage. I don't know, but I, f I feel like there's something in there that can be worked out. Cause right. I also like the fact that it would be after all of the area matches it's like nationals yeah. is shot and then you still have an area match to to shoot so right I don't know. which yes. it's hard it's hard to get all the area matches in before a nationals because it is the warmer climate areas are going to have their their area matches way later in the year where mm -hmm. it wouldn't make sense to hold nationals off beyond that but um yeah i i think we're on the same page with that one larger event later in the year and people would just have to pick the division they shot. They, they might get a shot at two different nationals. If it was a back-to-back -back format, if they shot um, a division that was included in each half of it, but there wouldn't be, and I'm guilty of this because you're able to do it. I, I'll shoot three or four nationals a year because I'm able to do it and I switch around. Sure. But, and a lot of people do that, but I would also like the, the dynamic of having to pick something and it would probably be better for me overall, not jumping around and sticking with something. I concur. Um, and I just had something in my mind and I lost it because I didn't write it down. It'll come but back. That's all right. It will. Oh, well, I know what it was. You said, or a back to back. I mean, yeah, you could do a back to back too all at one time. You just do an optics and a, and an irons. Right. And just yeah. do it that way too. So, yeah, you might be going but, beyond a week at that point of actual might matches with with change over time, um, and staff match in between. But it it would still be even if you didn't have a hundred percent duplicate staff for both matches, because a lot of people aren't going to be able to spend a week and a half there working both. Or I know they've done this at Frostproof Nationals in the pack in the past with back to backs where you work one you work one shoot one. So you work one, you get the free registration for the second one or vice versa. Um, right. They could do something like that. You could. Yep. And that, and that would work. So especially if you could split them up that, you know, like you could do a three and three, a three day with a three day back to back. And right. But there are ways. Yeah. Where it's the expenses are limited to one time. Right. So, and you know, you might get better deals anyway, because now people are going to want you to come and it's just the one time deal. So mm -hmm. 
might be some other things that work out pretty good. Who right. knows? And another thing I wanted to talk about was um, I know that you've done some training with Elias Frangoulis. Mm-hmm. A little bit. Um, yep. Mason Lane. Yep. And Ben Steger. Correct. For the people in the audience who are like, I haven't taken a class or I'm thinking about taking a class, explain, if you could, the differences between the three of them. Um, yeah, they're all very, very different. Uh, Mm -hmm. Elias was, um, well, it was a fundamentals level class that I took with him and it was just a one day class and it was very, uh, I would say it's, it was more mental focused and kind of confidence building, um, more than anything. We didn't get too much, uh, in the weeds on, technique or execution on that one, but I'm sure he does higher level classes than that. So I can't compare them apples to apples. Um, okay. Mason Lane is very good at, uh, breaking things down into small elements while, and tying it back into the big picture and explaining it in multiple ways. So multiple people can understand it because everyone thinks a little differently. They process mm-hmm. information differently. Um, and him partnered with his wife, Kaylee, like Kaylee will pick up on things that are a little bit different than what Mason picks up on. And they work really well together, giving kind of joint feedback on what they're seeing and kind of um, looking at problems and giving solutions from different perspectives. So I think that's really good. Um, and and Ben is really good at that as well. Um, he's more... I would say more big picture um, and less on like finite technique. Like he'll explain certain techniques and drills, but then it's how it factors into the bigger picture and how um, that factors into how you're going to shoot a stage. Um, and I've taken two, le- two of his classes, his, I guess, beginner and advanced class. And it's more drill focused. It's how to practice um, what you need to do moving forward after you take the class. It's not like none of these classes, you're going to walk away from the class the next day and be a better shooter. The onus is on you to apply that stuff in training and to really think about it and apply it to yourself in a way that you can understand and build off of it. I think they're all great. I don't know if Elias teaches that much. Um, but Ben and Mason are teaching all the time. Yeah, that's what they do. I highly recommend both of those guys. Okay. Now, I also feel, you mentioned Mason and Kay Lee. I also feel like with the two of them, I mean, she's going to know him very well. So if he's trying to explain something to someone and they're just not getting it, I feel like you've got an opportunity there where she might be, maybe it's a female. Yeah. Maybe she can make that connection and explain it to him. And they go, oh, so it's like twice the opportunity to break through to somebody. Right. Yeah, they're on the same page, but they're seeing things from slightly different perspectives. And they're able to explain it in different ways. It's definitely a good combination. I can see that. I'm in agreement with you. (laughs) Have you taken classes uh, with either of them? 
I have not. The only class I've taken was uh, I took one with Steve Anderson. Okay. That was a good one. I liked it. A lot of basics, the fundamentals, um, but also, you know, he's all about the positive reinforcement. He's gotten into it even more since I took it um, because since I took his class, which was 2019, he um, has gotten, you know, become that mental management instructor. Um, And I've taken that actually as well. So that was pretty interesting. But that's what I've done. Have you... Do you do any mental management stuff? Um, a little bit. I have not taken a, uh, a Steve Anderson class, but I I read with winning in mind, Lanny Basham's book when I was in high school, like he, Lanny Basham came from Olympic three position, small bore shooting. That's where he came from. So that was a recommended book right out of the gate for me. So I read that a long time ago and, um, yeah, it's it just I probably forgot nuance of the book in that amount of time, but I definitely have carried over mental stuff from the rifle side to the handgun side. Mental is okay. mental when you're coming down yeah. to just managing yourself. It, it is, but I, I do find it easier to do that in a 45 second stretch than <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. half hour. Yes, <laughs> so I definitely like that better. And I, I tell you, when you've shot rifle, you know how much cheaper pistol is. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. And you're not hauling nearly as much stuff around either. No, not at all. So what does your make ready look like? Um, it's not super exaggerated. Um, before I shoot a stage, when I'm kind of, when the stage is being reset, um, before I'm, before the on-deck shooter, I'm just visualizing, I'm going through, um, pretty much with my eyes closed and making sure I've got all my visual cues burned in and refining that multiple times before I'm up. And then I'll do my final walkthrough and just kind of confirm all my visual cues. I'm not doing anything at full speed in the final walkthrough, um, make sure I'm hitting all those. And then in my make ready, um, if I feel like I need to visualize it one more time, I'll do that and maybe dry fire just a little bit, but I'm not doing 10 draws and, um, dry firing the whole stage or anything. I've already done that in my head before then. So that's pretty much, pretty much it. It's not too drawn out. And I need to, I'm running a local match this weekend at my club and I've never Ipsic nationals in two weeks will be the first Ipsic match that I've shot. And you're not allowed to dry fire. You're not allowed to take sight pictures. So I just need to get myself in that mindset and make sure I've got, I guess, the visualization that much more buttoned up before then because you can't do any confirmation like that. Right. I don't don't even think you can air gun during your walkthrough, can you? Um, I'll have to ask somebody. I'm not sure about that. That, I know that's an IDPA thing, but. It is definitely an IDPA thing. So I could be getting those two confused in that regard. Yeah. So is all your gear set up for uh, Ipsic Nationals then? Yeah. Yeah, I shot an Ipsic legal setup at Handgun Nationals just to make mm. sure. I don't shoot anything crazy in front. I never moved anything really in front of my hip bones when all the positions changed. Um, everything has stayed behind my hip bones. The only thing I had to change in my belt was to take my stow magnet off the front of my belt. Because okay. you can't have anything in front of your hip bones. Okay. Right. 
All right, so I need to go back because I realized I skipped over a question when we were talking about nationals. Mm -hmm. And that was, I said there was something about NCAA championships that I wanted to talk about later. And that was actually during nationals where I mentioned how they live stream the NCAA championships online. Really cool. I took a bunch of screenshots because I really liked what they were doing. Um, As far as whether it's an area match or a nationals, what are your thoughts on live streaming? Um, It would be interesting. It's a little, it would be a little bit harder than like an NCAA rifle match where everybody's on the same firing line the whole time. And you can kind of just, and you have electronic scored targets that you can put up side by side with different perspective views and things like that. So it would be more challenging um, for it to be interesting for the viewer to have like a, there's got to be a better, better way to put it than cause and effect. Like you would need some kind of almost real time way of showing hits and points accumulated with the shooting that's happening. Otherwise you're following the ROs around scoring targets. And maybe that's interesting, but I think it might exceed people's attention spans a little bit like to sit through a whole squad or a whole match of, of that. I'm not sure. Depends on the audience. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think you initially have to think your audience is only going to be other competitors who aren't there. But I feel like day one and day two, I don't know how much interest there would be. There would be some, but when you hit day three and it would, this is where it would take a lot of coordination, but I think it would be interesting. Let's say, and I'm just going to throw out names. People know, but let's say JJ Rakaza was the first shooter on this stage. So you can, Anybody else coming up to shoot that stage, you could leave JJ's in a corner mm-hmm. and start it the same time that the other shooter, right? the current shooter, is shooting, like, say, Nils. And then you can see JJ's up in the corner, but Nils is the primary one, so you can see how they go against each other. At the end of the shooting, then you can flash up what JJ's time and hit factor was. Right talk about a few things. So you've got commentators and then, you know, within 30 seconds, boom, there's the hit factor and the time. And you're like, okay, well, here's what we saw. And, but in that meantime, you can say, well, if you noticed, you know, Nils kind of, um, he, he juggled his reload a little bit here, which is how JJ got ahead of him at this point, or, you know what I mean? Like, I think you could do it, but it would take coordination. And I think it would, take some other stuff because you couldn't do it like uh, the NCAA championships where you can right. see the targets live, see the yeah. impacts, see the scores. You're like, Oh, okay. There were some people messing around with that. Um, it was probably 2019 or 2020 um, where they were, I forget the name of the group. It was a real flash in the pan thing. And I think it ended kind of controversially. It was like super grand champ or something like that where they were, doing overlay videos like ghost overlay videos where they'd have fixed perspective cameras and turn the transparency down a little bit. Um, right. so you could see the 
characters directly overlaid on top of each other on the same stage to see where somebody was pulling away or falling behind or something like that. And it was actually pretty hmm. cool, but it, it yeah. disappeared. But it's possible okay. with having fixed perspective cameras, just make sure nothing moves. All the stage elements right. are fixed. You get a little blur on on the stage elements, but for the most part, they're they're solid. And then the only variable is the shooter moving. And, and this is where, yeah, and that's where it's sad that Cameo is in a state with restrictions because yeah. that that whole range facility is set up for that. Yeah where you could mount cameras because you can hardwire right into their um, internet system mm -hmm. and live stream stuff. So you could have like multiple cameras on stages and just that would be great. Unfortunately, yeah. it's, you know, in a state with restrictions. So yeah, I actually shot the, well, the no uh, fun. I shot the Colorado state match that year at cameo before nationals was supposed to be. And uh, the facility is amazing. It would have been a great venue for nationals, but just way too risky getting all those people yeah. out there. It is. That sucks. Yeah. I've heard nothing but great things about it. So it's too bad. It's, it's out, but you know what? Who knows? A case comes up yeah. soon in front of the Supreme court. Who knows what happens? Maybe right. that gets reversed and we can do it. That'd be yep. cool. God yep. would definitely want to do live streaming there. Yeah. So Absolutely. Now you are, you've decided to throw your hat in the ring mm -hmm. for area five director. Yep. Now you were serving as the blue crab, blue grab. I don't know why I can't say those two words tonight. Holy cow. Every time I try to say it, it's like, <laughs> la, la, la. it's like I'm having a stroke. Bluegrass sportsman's league. Yep. Um, you were, was it two years you were the president? Two years. Yeah. Yeah. They're one okay. year elected terms. Okay. Yeah, and before that, yeah. I was on the board for two years as our pistol division representative, pistol division director. Okay, so, so you've got like four years of experience doing that on, stuff. On that board. I've, I've served on multiple right. boards before that in a professional setting in my previous career um, as just at-large board member and president of different boards. Um, so I'm, I'm comfortable in that setting. Um and the reason I ran for president of the uh, Bluegrass Sportsman's League was, I'm not going to get into too much detail on it, but we had a uh, an imminent issue with an adjacent landowner that was coming to light. And it was pretty clear that the president at the time was not going to be a good face of the club in that situation. He was going to be way too emotional and get us in trouble just by acting emotionally. So that's why I ran for president to make sure we had a reasonable level-headed face of the club in this issue that was coming up. Um, so I'm not, I'm not a stranger to uh, jumping into situations when situations are bad to try to, to try to make them better. I'm not, not afraid of that. It, it, I know how much work it is and how contentious it can be, but I know that it's still at a point where it can be saved. So can I ask what it is you do or would you prefer not to say? What do you mean? Uh, professionally. Well, my previous career um, before GX products was a full-time thing. I was an environmental consultant 
um, I was working for various uh, consulting and uh, civil engineering firms on environmental remediation projects, primarily, and environmental due diligence projects for property transactions. So I would, uh, I, I worked as a number of different things. I was a staff scientist. I was a GIS analyst. I was a project manager. I was an operations manager, um, managing all different levels of essentially environmental cleanup projects from, uh, like leaking underground petroleum storage tank cleanups to EPA Superfund cleanup sites. Um, wow. Yeah. Doing all kinds that's of different not, things there. That's not, those aren't small projects. No, no. They got to be really Holy big. cow. When we started Did, getting into, I managed the demolitions of a couple of former DuPont manufacturing facilities in West Virginia oh. that got really, really involved. Different uh, explosives manufacturing facilities and there was a lot of chemical testing that went went on on the properties and it gets really, really involved. But I served on different uh, professional boards um, in that time, um, air and waste management association boards, um, different uh, petroleum marketing boards as we would uh, essentially act as, as consultants. We were the in-between between a, a client and a regulator. So whenever there was new environmental regulation coming down the pipe that people were unsure of, it was our job to fully understand it and being able to be able to explain it to clients and offer solutions that work within the regulatory framework for the clients to try to save them money and also achieve the goals of the regulatory programs. Did you get some type of environmental degree at West Virginia? Not really. Um, yeah, okay. my education background was a little varied. Um, I did my undergraduate in landscape architecture at WVU. Okay. Graduated in 2009, and that was like the low point of the recession. So almost nobody in my graduating class got jobs out of college. Um, and I was offered a research assistantship to stay for grad school. Um, so I stayed for grad school and got a master's in agricultural natural resource economics, but my focus was GIS and remote sensing. So it was mainly cartography Ooh. and um, aerial imagery analysis, GIS analyst type stuff. Um, okay. That's kind of what got me into environmental consulting in the first job. I ended up going to work for a consulting company after that that was in the coal industry doing surficial monitoring of underground mining operations. Um, and that kind of just led from one job to another in environmental consulting, kind of a rabbit hole. I, uh, I used to actually teach aerial photography uh, interpretation at one time. I actually created the class and then taught it. There's a lot to it. It's very interesting stuff. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I mean, look, this was in the early 90s, yeah. 30 years ago. So obviously things have changed considerably, but right. you know, back then they used certain types of film and you could determine what type of foliage and right. other stuff was down there. And, and it was yeah, all like very, very cool. Near infrared and false color infrared and all that stuff. Yeah. Yep. So yep. yeah. Okay. But now you've, so now you're just doing GX products full time. Yeah. Um, about it's been, Almost three years ago, I was able to quit my full-time consulting job and jump full-time to GX. 
Okay. You don't do small engine repair behind you? Uh, that's personal stuff. I'm always tearing stuff apart. <laughs> I see like a little mini bike back oh, there. That, and I'm yeah, like... that's a future project. <laughs> oh, a future project. That's a future project. Uh, okay. Little, uh, I've been, I've been 19, staring at it the whole time. <laughs> it's a little 1971 <laughs> Honda Trail 50 that needs some oh, restoration. Cool. That'll be a pit bike at some point. Okay. All right. So let's talk GX products. How, how was that born? Um, that was born out of originally just messing around making holsters for myself and friends when I saw what was on the market and I wasn't too impressed with the quality of what was out there and just, I I've been working with my hands in that kind of setting my whole life. Um, my dad is a furniture and cabinet maker. I grew up in a wood shop, mm. um, running machines. And from the time I was probably eight years old, sweeping floors, I've always been in that environment. Um, so I kind of knew what my capabilities were and I like trying to solve problems and I like making fixtures and, um, started making some holsters and they were working out really well and came up with the idea for the, uh, the cam lever locking system, um, which I was shocked nobody had done before and started playing around with that. And that worked really well and, um, started selling them and it just slowly grew at first and then kind of exploded to the point where I could not work a full-time job and do this at the same time. I had to make the leap. Wow. Okay. And you've pretty much, I guess, finalized what you've got and you just m make adjustments as better technology comes out. Um, right now it's like the holsters I make now, if you compare them to three years ago, they're very, very similar. The quality just keeps, going up as I refine things, um, fit and finish right. has always been pretty high level, but it's always getting better. I never, never, uh, cut any corners to try to save time. Um, so right now it's keeping up with the guns that are coming on the market. I make all my own molds oh. of the guns, um, which is very advantageous for me because I have complete control over the dimensional accuracy of the holsters at that point. Um, there's commercially available molds for a lot of guns, but dimensionally they're very inaccurate because I don't know why they haven't figured it out, but they don't take the shrink rate of the casting resins they use into account. So when you're pulling a, a master cavity mold off a gun and you're using a high shrink rate resin, which resins of different levels, um, can shrink up to, uh, if I had to throw a number at it, that's easy to understand, maybe a 16th of an inch per linear inch in some cases. So I have some molds that I bought right out of the gate trying to use, um, like blue guns are the worst and they're not holster molds. Those are just dummy props, but I bought one right. just to play around with and it was a shadow two and the overall gun is almost a quarter inch shorter than the real gun because of how much the resin shrinks when it cures. So oh, wow. there, there's some companies that sell um, 
commercial molds for guns that are still dimensionally inaccurate because of that to the real gun. So your work, just like data analysis, it's garbage in, garbage out. You're starting right. with bad dimensions. You're not, it's only going to get worse as you go through the right. process. So I know the exact shrink rates of the casting resins I'm using. I'm able to build that into the initial uh, female cavity mold that I'm making off the gun, which then translates with the shrink rate into a dimensionally accurate male plug that I'm then making the holsters off of. And I'm able to structurally structurally reinforce all my molds um, so they don't warp like the factory or the uh, commercially available molds do. So they last a really long time. And I've got a system worked out to where if one ever gets damaged, I've got a library of female cavities that I can make new molds off of. So I've got backups to everything. And it's been working out really well, the process that I've developed for that. How hard is it to find all of the necessary models of these guns to make a mold from? Um, I'm very fortunate in the area where I'm located that there's a, a good number of shooters that are always buying new guns. So when a new gun comes out, I kind of work with the local guys and they'll lend me the gun to make molds of, and I'll give them the first holster that comes off of that mold for free. So it's a pretty good exchange or I'll purchase the gun and have it in my inventory, um, to make molds off of. So there's certain guns that I just won't make holsters for that. There's not going to be any significant demand for in USPSA. Like if a gun okay. comes out, that's very niche and you know, nobody's going to shoot it or it's been out for a long time and nobody shoots it. I'm not going to invest in the tooling to, to make a mold for that. But there are like a lot of guns. Alien. That, <laughs> yeah. I've never done an alien. There's been three people in three years that have asked me for it. And just the logistics of getting my hands on the gun to make the mold and then not ever covering my costs of making the mold. It just doesn't make sense. I've still never seen somebody shoot one in the U.S. I've heard they're out there. The guys either. don't even shoot USPSA. They just go to indoor ranges and shoot them. I saw it at SHOT Show. That, yeah. That's the only time I've ever seen one. Yeah. Pretty, pretty interesting looking gun. Yeah, it's interesting. But they, they skirted some rules to get it legal, but... It's interesting. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Now you have a patent for that vice system. Do you not? It's not a formal. I don't have a formal patent on it. Um, I okay. went through the provisional patent process and I got a uh, provisional utility patent on it, but I do not have a formal patent on it um, through some okay. errors of my own. I, I learned a lot about the patent system. Through that well, that's thing. what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Did you do it yourself or did you have someone else? Do I it? did it myself and that's okay. where I got myself in trouble. Um, there's, there's a limit on, uh, there's a, the time frame. Well, you can only market something for a maximum of one year, um, before it's no longer able to be patented. So even if wow. I had a provisional utility patent and I submitted a revised provisional utility patent, if it was on the open market for more than a year, you're no longer able to patent it is essentially what it was. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That was news to me. Okay. But 
how many so roughly how many units are you moving a month a month uh about a hundred and 140 to 160 a month wow something about okay that yeah about 40 a week or roughly is what i'm making okay yeah about five a day when i when five, i can really when i can day. really dig in it's about 40 a week okay how long is the wait time for one right now it's it's pretty long um at the current rate that i'm manufacturing and with my current backlog it's about 16 or 17 weeks um it, it got way longer than that uh up to this point just with me getting sidetracked with things and moving my shop earlier this year and stuff mm -hmm. kind of got out of hand for me but um i'm back on track with that lead time with a goal of reducing that lead time through the winter I'm, I'm looking at maybe changing my business model once i get caught up a little bit um to not allow myself to get that far backlogged again um still kind of figuring out what that's going to look like but maybe go to more of a, a ready to ship assortment model rather than all these commissioned custom holsters um, just to keep the lead times very short at that point and just have what's available is available right now. And then maybe only accept a certain number of custom orders beyond that a week or a month just to keep the lead time down. Okay. So is that are the custom orders then are what takes the longest? Well, everything's custom right now. Everything's a hundred percent custom. So it's a bunch of different color combinations, uh, custom designs that people want, um, that are one-offs that I work with a printing company that does a thermal infusion on the material. Um, oh, wow. yeah, there's, there's a lot of variables and then new guns coming to market in the same time and making molds for those new guns. It's a lot to juggle, but it's something wow. I'm, I'm figuring out. It's been a learning experience for sure. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I never expected it to grow as fast as it did. Okay. Wow. Sounds like quite the process. So it's yeah. not as simple as, oh, here's some Kydex. Let me heat it up and fold it this way and fold it that way. Screw yeah. it together. And well, you can, it out. That. you can do that. I've seen but... some. Yep. Just my, go my, to a gun show. <laughs> yeah. My, my goal is every single holster that, that goes out is the same level of fit and finish and quality as every other one. I, I don't let anything out the door that doesn't pass what I consider to be my standard because it's just, it's just not worth it to me. I need to be proud of everything that leaves the shop or it's just not worth it. Okay. And it, and it's still just you, right? Yeah, it's just me. Um, okay. I, I'm working to get to a point where I can hire somebody. And part of the, uh, the reason that we moved um, earlier this year was to take another step towards being able to do that. I was working out of the garage, the attached garage in our previous house, and I can't bring strangers into my house as employees. Right. There's the fact yeah. that it's strangers in your house and there's zoning regulations that don't permit it. Um, so now I've got the shop separate from the house um, out of city zoning and I can do that kind of stuff when the time is right. But I just got to get to a point where the time is right and it makes sense because there's going to be a huge learning curve for anybody that I bring in 
and there's going to be a long time before they're really being productive and you got to start them off slow on different tasks and set them up for success and then hope they stick around. Right. And it's hard Uh, to find anybody that wants to work for a reasonable amount of money. Uh, you're not the first person to tell me that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a, my mechanic is like an independent guy. He has a, a big shop right behind his house lifts and all of that. He has like two bays with lifts and then he has an office space as well. And even for him, he's like one, nobody wants to work Two, By the time I get him trained up, they're leaving. They don't want to be right. here. And then he go, and then funny enough, he said, you know, I've even gone to like the high schools where they have shop class. So these guys are actually, you know, automotive shop class. Mm-hmm. So these guys are getting some other experience and he's like, I'll bring them on, try to get them, you know, slowly work them up. But he goes, they're the worst ones. And it's like, wow, I would have never guessed that. But yeah. So it just seems like in general, it's, uh, it's very difficult these days. So yeah, it's, good not, luck. A un- yeah, it's not a unique struggle <laughs> to me at all. Oh, definitely it's, not. I don't understand it. I, I don't understand how people haven't gone back to work after COVID at this point. Like there must be subsidies I don't know about that are still out there or people just move back in with their parents or what, but I don't get it. Now nobody's working. Like you said, it's been three years and yeah. there's a people lot still of still haven't returned. There's a lot of businesses that are running very truncated hours right now because they can't get anybody to work. Right. Crazy, crazy. Any big um we've talked a little bit. So I I guess I um I got I started to get into it with the, the questioning of the the president and the board member at your club, you said professionally you've sat on boards as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the, so we've talked about what got you into shooting, what got you into starting GX products and all of that. What was the catalyst for you to throw your hat in the ring for area five director? I've been talking about it for a couple of years. Um, I, I know the current Area 5 director, Rick Steele. I get along well with him. I knew he was not going to be running again um, in this election cycle. And I just know that I, ha- I have a lot, of, uh, a lot of resources and a lot to offer in terms of being able to think situations through effectively long-term and kind of project management skills and kind of financial management skills that would lend itself well to that position. Um, I feel like there's, there's a lot of people paying attention now, which is a great thing. Um, in a way, all of this, all of these issues have had a beneficial effect in terms of people at least paying attention now. Like there's a lot of people on the board that ran unopposed to get on the board. And it's because nobody really was paying attention. Nobody really cared or wanted those positions. And that's what you ended up with. And I can't fault um, certain people for, for taking those positions. Um, And it's good that somebody stepped up and took those positions. But at this point, I feel like it's time to 
kind of refresh that board and look at things through different lenses. Um, and it's good now that people are experiencing an opportunity to make a real choice of who represents their area on the board. Um, so in that way, it's, it's beneficial, but we're in a situation right now that has to be resolved. If we keep going on the path we're going, the org's going to run out of money in four or five years, and that's going to be it. We, we've got to turn this around. Yeah, and, and let's just say there were no issues, zero issues. It's still good to have turnover with different people to constantly refresh and give a different perspective mm-hmm. of, of things. So I think that's that's always a good thing. Now, I guess you had never considered um, running for president. Not seriously. I don't, I don't think president right now is that, uh, that effective of a position. Um, it's all the, uh, I don't like, I don't want to use the word power, but there's, there's no real teeth in the presidential position right now. It's just kind of a figurehead. Um, right. And I'm not looking to do it for the money. I'm looking to do it to help the organization. Um, the community has given me a lot and given me the opportunity to start a business in this space and pretty much live in this space. And it's a way that I can give back to the community. I've always tried to give back to whatever community I was involved in um, through different hobbies and through my professional career. Um, and I just think it's something that I could I could lend a uh, I could be beneficial in that position. Um, I don't know. I, I think uh, I don't know where I was going with that. Just lost my train of thought. <laughs> <That's> okay. <laughs> Stop myself before I start rambling. I do it all the time, so it's I like it when other people yeah. hit the same wall. Like uh, I forgot where I was going with that. I'm yeah. fine with that. Perfectly fine with it. So, would you be open for um, if there are other Area Five candidates? Would you be open for a debate? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So if there are, I will definitely be reaching out for that then. Well, Leif, that's everything that I had. Was there anything we touched on that you feel we need to go back to or do you, or we didn't touch on that you want to mention? I don't think so. I know we're going to be okay. uh, kind of expanding on some of this stuff in a future podcast in terms of divisions and participation. Yes, absolutely. I want to get into <laughs> on that now. It, right. I know. I, I was going to touch on it earlier. I was like, no, I'm just going to leave yeah. it alone. But it's funny because we're saying in the in the future, but by the time people hear this, <laughs> it would have been in the past. Right, right. So it's kind of funny. Like, what do you mean future? We are, I already listened to it. These people are weird. Yeah. So, well, I appreciate you coming on. It's been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you having me. Sorry if we bored anybody with rifle stuff. (laughs) Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.